0: This is the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast.
1: And I actually do get a lot of people asking me today, right, like, you know, will you you show me your deals, right? Or will you take me through your projects and stuff like that? Mm -hmm. Uh, But the big thing you got to remember is, how do I help that guy? You're listening to the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast, where we discuss tangible tips, tricks, and best practices for becoming financially free. The show is designed for people who want to either start real estate investing or for those who want to scale their real estate business.
0: What's up, guys? This is Jonathan Farber, host of the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. This show is all about achieving financial freedom as fast as possible so you can do whatever makes you happy in life. For me, that vehicle was real estate and it's how I achieved financial freedom at 27. If you wanna know how I got started, my journey is presented in a YouTube video posted in the show notes and I post daily in our private Facebook group about my favorite topics and day-to-day strategies. I appreciate you guys being here and let's get started. Oh, by the way, reach out if you ever need help. I try to keep my calendar open to talk to anyone that needs it or has any quick questions. See you guys guys. Talk to you later. This episode is sponsored by Infinite Road Destinations, the smartest short-term rental property management group I know, and the group that manages my properties. This is a company that's very close to my heart, run by two of the smartest, most attentive people I know, Claire Rosenberg and Alex Brashears. Claire and I first met when we worked together at NetApp, where she was a top performer and rose crazy fast in the company. And Alex is just one of the most active, genuine people I know in the real estate space. The two of them together bring a blended background of project management, software design, and extensive experience with automation tools and virtual assistants. Through these experiences, they optimize any property to deliver a hands-off experience to owners while delivering the highest occupancy and highest daily rates possible. You guys know I would not recommend anything to anyone in this group that I do not fully endorse or think that is the absolute best product. And this company is that. And like I said before, this is the exact company and people that manage my Airbnbs. If you don't believe me, here are a few of the other tools and services that come along with the team. Listing optimization, guest support and approval, communication and reservations, key exchange and management, dynamic pricing, welcome kit creation, listing, advertising, and marketing, vendor management, including cleaners, maintenance, handymen, runners, and monthly property reports. To learn more, check out shorttermmadeeasy.com or email info at shorttermmadeeasy.com. And on the form, just mention that you heard it here or mention my name. So give it a try. You have nothing to lose and they offer a satisfaction guarantee. And I assure you guys, you will not be disappointed. What's up, guys? Today we have an awesome episode with Lior Rosansky. Lior is based in Boston, Massachusetts, and he is 27 years old, but has done quite a lot. He's a multifamily investor focusing on three to seven unit size deals. He does value add projects, specifically with the JV model, finding distressed multifamily properties, fixing them up, and doing cash out refis. He's done two condo development projects in Boston. He's also an active broker. has sold plenty of real estate up to about 30 million at this point and currently owns 38 units of about $12 million portfolio. Um, this is spread between 12 buildings. And we got connected through another awesome person who's been on the show, Willie Mandrell. I do not recommend... I do not remember what episode number that was, but that will be in the show notes. But anyway, Leo just has a great story. And again, at a young age, has done a lot. And now he's doing real estate as a full-time business, growing it on the brokerage side and the multifamily side. So it's really cool to hear how he did it, how he got started and all that. The main learning I had from this show was how to find partners quickly to scale without syndicating. Like I said before, he is doing JV deals and he was able to scale to 38 units through that. And we talked about what that actually nets out to him from a cash flow basis. You will have to hear what that number is, but it's cool to hear how someone is able to scale to 38 units where most people either don't think it's possible or they start with one or two units and maybe do one or two a year and they don't get to scale that can really reap a lot of the benefits of having more property and kind of being able to take yourself out of the business like Lior has done. Today's tangible tip, pull a list and start cold calling people this week. Even if it's just five people, start getting the feeling of flexing that muscle. You don't have to do it yourself for long, but you can delegate it after that. You just need to get an idea of what that actually feels like to pick up the phone and call someone and start hunting for off-market leads. Lior talks about when he was building up his realtor business he was cold calling people all the time. He got really good at it. And he was finding tons of listings just from cold calling people because a lot of people don't like to do it or they don't take the time to get good at it. And he took time to actually perfect his craft. And now it's really helped him in the multifamily side of things where he's calling people all the time, seeing if they're willing to sell their property and he's finding deals that way. So that's that's today's tangible tip. Just get a list, start calling. You can pull it from PropStream or ListSource, or your local government, or not local government, your local city or ordinance, and you can just start calling. And it's a great way to actually get in the game and start finding off-market leads. Without any further ado, awesome episode today with Lior Rozanski. All right, Lior, what is going on, man? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for uh, having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. I am excited to have you on for a couple of reasons. One, through because you're you're connected through Willie Mandrell, who's a great guy and uh, been on the show a couple of times. And two, you're 27. You've done a ton at the age of 27 or by the age of 27. Me being 27 also in our group really focused a lot on millennials and building wealth kind of in the early years. Um, I feel like we're just going to have a lot to talk about. And, uh, you know, just your story is, is pretty cool, man. So from a high level, if you wouldn't mind, could you give us the the entry point into real estate how you got into real estate what caught your eye with it and then kind of what your first couple moves were
1: yeah for sure and uh no appreciate you having me on here us uh, young bucks got to stick together right it's <laughs> 100% uh, business um yeah for sure so i uh yeah i would love to give you a little background so basically um, i always say i'm kind of uh, destined to be doctor turned real estate guy Um, You know, for me, it was kind of a classic immigrant story. Parents uh, brought me here, wanted me to become ideally a doctor. Uh, So I went to school for that. Um, It was a pre-med, you know, took a gap year and was actually submitted a couple of med school apps. Um, And that's kind of the, just as I was doing that, that's kind of the period when I started exploring the idea of like investments in general. Um, you know, and I kind of figured that I wasn't going to be the next Warren Buffett and I wasn't going to hit some crazy tech stock and blow it up like that. So I started looking at some alternative vehicles and, you know, real estate was never really that much in the cards. I mean, no one in my family really did it. Um, I had zero construction background. Uh, you know, my dad always told me I had two left hands, so I can't, I can't sure. swing a hammer for my life. Um, you know, so, but it, but it kind of just... I kind of stumbled on it a little bit randomly. Uh, someone recommended Bigger Pockets to me, and you know the numbers kind of made sense, right? I mean, I you know the the idea of buying something, renting it out, generating a little cash flow was a very was a very logical idea to me. I and mean, I'm I'm kind of a numbers guy, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know it just it made sense. And at that time, I was kind of thinking, you know what, I don't really have that much to lose. Uh, I was you know I think I was 22, 23 at the time. And I just said, no, screw it. Let's uh, let's take a shot at it. So, Mm. yeah. So I kind of uh, went with that mentality, uh, house hacked my first three family and uh, liked it so much within the first month or two that I pulled out all my med school apps and uh, the rest was history from there.
0: (laughs) Wow. Just like that. I mean, you knew that was the direction you wanted to go, though.
1: Yeah, you know, I don't know if I would say I had like a crystal clear vision of where I was going with it, um, but at that time, I started networking very heavily. Um, once I closed on that first house hack, I was also networking with a bunch of uh, larger investors and developers, and I actually um, had already in motion uh, kind of kind of like an informal agreement with a developer. If I found him a deal, he said he would bring me in there, show me the ropes, um, and it was just interesting, right? I mean, again, he showed me the numbers behind the projects. And again, I'm a numbers guy and the numbers seem to pencil out pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it kind of got me pretty excited to see what led that, you know, what can uh, happen down this path.
0: Got it. How, how did that first house hack go? Anything memorable from it or kind of, you know, looking back at it?
1: Uh, pretty straightforward, honestly. Uh, the big thing I would say is within the first month I had a nice eight thousand dollar bill because I had a, uh, one of my furnaces go out. Mm. Uh, so that's always fun. So I learned the lesson of uh, staying liquid and having good reserves very quickly. Um, but otherwise, you know, it's you know I tell this to all, everyone. It's it really isn't rocket science. I mean, the numbers, the numbers are the numbers. As long as you are pretty realistic about your rents, it's pretty easy to understand what your expenses are. Um, you know, there's really not that much to it.
0: Yep. hundred percent. So what happened next? Uh, You did the first house hack. It sounds like you started gaining momentum. You knew it was the direction you wanted to go. Um, Tactically, you know, what was your next deal? Who did you start talking to? What was your mindset at that point? All that. Yeah. So
1: again, I was trying to figure out, okay, so I did my first house hack. I used my, I used up my FHA card, if you will how do I go to the next project? Right. Cause I think a lot of people, once they do the first house hack, always think, okay, what do I do after I use that first FHA loan? Yep. So, you know, as I said, I started networking a bunch and I figured out that there was a couple of developers out there that if I brought them a good deal would essentially bring me onto the deal and, you know, and essentially teach me the ropes of what it is. Right. Cause I, you know, um, they For them, it made sense, right? Because if they could find another deal, um, that's obviously a win for them. And if I could get into um, the ownership side of a development project, learn the construction side, you know, it would just be beneficial for myself, right? And, and I actually do get a lot of people asking me today, right? Like, you know, will, will, you, will you show me your deals, right? Or will you take me through your projects and stuff like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the big thing you got to remember is how do I help that guy? right? Like, how do I, cause the developer, the guy that, the guy that already has the resume is busy, right? He's, he's got a lot of stuff going on. He's being pulled in every single direction. Um, so reaching out to him and saying, Hey, can I walk your project? Or can you help me figure out the ropes? It's not really going to go that far for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of went up the route of, okay, well um, I'm going to help you find a really good deal uh, because I also became a real estate agent at the time. Um, And I started, you know, and I really started hammering the marketing and acquisition side. So that's the, that's the angle I took is I'm going to find, I'm going to provide you value, find you a deal. And then I'm going to, and that's how I'm going to kind of rope us in together.
0: Mm, Got it. Um, Interesting. So, I mean, it sounds like at the beginning, did you have any real estate friends? Like, like something that just, this is sort of prompted, but I know at the beginning for a lot of people, they, they struggle because they don't know people in the industry, and it's in some cases hard to meet people, but it sounds like for you, that was an important part of getting networked at the beginning and then finding partners, finding brokers, finding other investors to just start thinking about how to do more deals and also maybe scale. So can you just maybe talk to like how you thought about networking at the beginning or what your plan or tactics were to meet more people in a, in a new market?
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say the big thing is just don't overthink it. Right. I mean, it's not, I, I didn't have like some insane game plan of how I was going to, you know, swash a bunch of different people. Right. I mean, it really was pretty straightforward. I connected with a couple of brokers on bigger pockets. Um, I found one agent that I really liked. He started, you know, he started helping me. He connected me with his broker, which is actually uh, Willie Mandrell, the, the guy that connected us. Mm-hmm. Right. And through him, you know, then it's kind of you start meet as you meet one person, you meet another, right? You meet one person. I met him. He introduced me to his networking group. So I went to his networking group and then you kind of just play the cards you're given. Right. So I I would say the big takeaway is don't don't, uh, you know, don't overthink it. Right. Just start small, figure, connect with a few people and and see where that conversation takes you. Um, it, It really there's really no like fancy game plan for net for networking.
0: -hmm. Okay, so what happened next after that first house hack?
1: Yeah, so I ended up jumping into uh, two development deals because I found that developer two uh, pretty cool condo projects um, in in a Boston neighborhood. Um, I will say those were probably some of my tougher years. (laughs) Those two projects uh, they were incredibly incredibly stressful. Um, I had you know we didn't really make any money. Um, very, very negligible. Both of them went way over budget. Um, you know, there was a lot of, I, I, I quickly learned that, you know, it's very easy to put a front facade. Um, but, you know, it, it, it was a great learning experience. Um, I figured out, I, I, learned, I learned the development business. I learned the construction business. I learned what things you need to look out for, what things people tell you that may not be so true or maybe not be so great on the front end. And I kind of took those experiences with me, even though I didn't make money, to kind of my next step afterwards uh, to really start building out my rental portfolio.
0: Mm-hmm. Would you do those again if you had the choice? 100%. you would. Okay, 100%. got it. So you still feel like you learned enough from those to, to push forward?
1: You know, it was uh, it was basically my uh, MBA, if you will, in uh, real estate.
0: <laughs> okay, got it. Yeah, no, just curious because, I yeah. mean, you know, like, for example, uh, I took a stab at flipping. I guess I could say I learned some stuff that helped me, but if I could do it again, I just wouldn't have done it. But it sounds like in your experience, you learned enough from that, that and you maybe met some people that it was still worthwhile or kind of maybe, did it lead you to your next set of rentals or was there any connection there? Or I guess kind of just going down the path here, you know, what happened after that? You know, two years is not a really short period of time, but, um, you know, I think most people also, after they have a tough experience might just stop. So curious to hear how you kind of kept the momentum going.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't really let it deter me because to, I guess there's a couple of takeaways that I took for a minute. First of all, I realized I did not like the flipping slash development game, right? That really wasn't for me. Because when I really sat back after the projects, you know, I, I thought about it. And I was like, look, I just spent a year, year and a half, almost. I think it was pretty close to two years, um, developing these things, sinking my life into them. And even if I had made a profit, right, even if I made 50 or hundred or 150 G's, whatever it was, right. You know, you just, you're basically just taking a check and you're starting all over from scratch. Right. I mean, you don't, you don't really have anything to show for it, except, except some cash. What? and I, and I quickly realized I didn't like that. Right. I, I, if I was going to do all that work, I wanted to have an asset that would continue to be there. Right. Like Um, that my hard work would pay off, not just in a one-time check, but uh, over the long-term period. Um, So that was probably one of the biggest takeaways I took. Um, You know, in terms of contacts and everything, yeah, you know, I I definitely developed some good contractor contacts, um, you know, vendors like architects, attorneys, all that stuff. Um, But the other thing I also kind of, you know, that really, that I really learned from that experience is it really it kind of hardened me a little bit if that makes sense is you know because real estate especially the construction business it's a tough business right i mean if you if you don't know what you're doing people you're going to get swallowed up very very quickly um so i kind of really learned i, I just learned how, to, how how to be a professional in the space right i learned what kind of, you know, what kind of crap you can take from people, what kind of crap you shouldn't take from people, uh, what are expectations, what are good expectations, bad expectations. So it really just, you know, I, I kind of, I thought about it and I said, why would I stop now when I kind of just learned the hardest lessons um, in the industry?
0: Mm-hmm, for sure. And were you still living in that original house hack at the time? Were you doing additional house hacks kind of like in tandem with the development stuff?
1: Uh, no, I wasn't just because, um, you know, with FHA, uh, you know, you're taking a loan for 96 and a half percent. And in order to get out of that FHA loan to house hack another multi, you'd have to be at 80% to refi out. Um, so at that, I, I just didn't have enough equity build up at that time to continue to house hack.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, got Absolutely. it. So how did you get into, I guess, rentals after that, especially being in Massachusetts? specifically even the Boston area where most people would say it's too expensive or the tenant laws are not in your favor or all sorts of excuses, but um, you found a way to get into rentals and grow portfolio. So can you just take us through kind of your next steps and then from a high level, what it turned into? Yeah. I
1: mean, Boston's definitely not an easy market to play in. Uh, It's definitely, it's one of the more expensive markets across the country, Uh, you're definitely right about the landlord-tenant laws that are definitely not in your favor here as well. (laughs) Um, I can tell you that from a lot of experience. Um, But, you know, the way, so after having done those projects, I kind of, again, sat back, I had those, I had those experiences, I knew where I wanted to go now, I knew I wanted to go down the rental path. And again, I just figured out, okay, who can I connect with to take me to the next level, right? Um, And how can I bring them value? So, I actually ended up connecting with that broker that I mentioned to you, who I knew was doing some rental projects um, around the area, and he would—he he had a similar model, right? I mean, he would take distressed properties um, and he would renovate them, whether it was, you know, kind of light value add where it was just cosmetics, or it was gut rehabs. Um, but again, instead of selling them off as flips or condos, he would just keep them in his rental portfolio, right? So for me, the biggest obstacles I saw are, well, okay, I don't, I'd love to do that project. I have some construction experience, but now I don't have, I still don't really have the experience to raise that uh, private money, right? Cause I obviously didn't have uh, a ton of cash sitting in the bank to go put 25% down. Plus I didn't really have access to commercial bank financing, right? Because those first two development projects we financed through hard money. Um, but you know, it's going to be very, very tough for you to finance a rental construction project through hard money. Um, just cause the numbers are going to be very tough to float. So those were the weaknesses I saw. And you know, what I realized again, very similar to the first developer I partnered with is I figured out how can I help this guy? And for him, it was two things. It was a, again, finding the deals, um, which was number one. And number two, I also started developing a skill for getting really good at underwriting, right? So at the time, I started taking some courses um, where I was really learning kind of the finer details of Excel financial underwriting and modeling. Um, So I became very, very good at that. And that's kind of the value I led with for that next partner, right? And um, so I ended up finding him a number of deals. I basically put together the financial modeling, figure out how to structure the deals. And he was able to provide his value, which was, again, raising the money, bringing in the commercial bank financing. Um, And, you know, we did that over and over again to the point where now I have those skills. I can raise the money and I can bring in the commercial financing. But again, that's something that I kind of worked over two to three, four
0: years. Got it. Love that. You said you bring value first and that's how you're finding your partners. Um, you mentioned two things there, I guess if we could kind of go at them in like, uh, in order, you said you were bringing value through finding deals and then you also learned how to analyze deals. So can you talk to some of the strategies you were using to find deals to bring to people at that time?
1: Yeah. So, um, I I think I mentioned, so I was also, um, my other business at the time was being a real estate agent. And most of my, honestly, most of my business as a real estate agent, I generated through cold calling. I got really, really good at cold calling. I would basically slam the phones probably four hours a day, every day. Um, So I got very, very good at that. And, you know, I was able to generate business for my agent business, as well as find essentially distressed leads for ourselves, right? So that was probably method, uh, primary method number one. Um, you know, as an agent, I started networking a ton with other agents, told them I was looking for property. So we definitely found a couple of deals through other agents I knew. Um, so those were probably the two main avenues, right? And what I tell people is you don't, you don't need a bunch of fancy avenues, right? I would just stick to one or two, um, channels that you can really focus on and dominate. Um, so I chose kind of cold calling and networking and I got really, really good at them.
0: Mm. Any tips for someone that is maybe having a hard time cold calling, or has a fear of cold calling? or you know if you if you wouldn't even mind walking through what you would say on the phone, I think that might help some people.
1: Honestly, I mean, again, you're you're talking to a science guy in college. I mean, I was the furthest thing away from a salesperson <laughs> that you could possibly get. Um, I kept it simple, right? I mean, it was a very, very simple script. just hey, you know, um, I'm, I'm working in Boston. Um, I saw you own this property. Have you thought about, have you considered potentially selling the property? Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. literally very, very simple. You know, I'd obviously I studied up, I, you know, I viewed a lot of like Grant Cardone videos, a lot of different types of sales videos um, just so I got pretty good at like handling different kinds of objections and stuff like that. But again, I mean, you know, in terms of cold call hesitation, I mean, it, for me, it was just, that's the channel I chose. Right. I mean, I I chose it I I I felt comfortable with it I didn't mind the rejection um I kind you know for me I got a sales coach as well um you know who gave me some tips like you know treat every no the classic treat every no as like one step closer to your next yes um so it was just a bunch of these little culmination of tricks that I got from my personal coaches uh you know books videos all that stuff that just you know let me crank away at the phones and just get it done
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, love that. Um. Yeah, I think it's just one of those things that it's like, it's not really even the words that matter. Like, those are the words, the words are actually really simple, It's just a matter of like, okay, am I using the, the excuse of not thinking I'm comfortable with the words to not make the calls. And that's kind of more of like the root cause analysis. I think for most people that then they just need a push to actually do it. And doesn't matter what you say, you just need to do the activity. Um, I guess there's one thing though, where were you getting those leads? Like where were you sourcing those names and those phone numbers to make the calls?
1: Uh, yeah, th- that's a great question. So, I mean, I would. I had a system that I used called Red X. Um, that was, I primarily, okay. again, got it for my real estate agent business. Uh, but through that, I was able to call, you know, expired and canceled listings on MLS. Um, I was able to get farming leads of specific neighborhoods and just call up neighbors. Um so I, I, basically any any resource I could find where I could get a uh, I could get a list, I would grab and just call
0: okay cool uh, and then i guess moving to the next part of value add the way that you were trying to get connected with people to partner or kind of you know find i guess either investors um you said you got really good at analyzing deals this is an area that i think a lot of people struggle with especially on multifamily you know analyzing a one unit or even a four unit is pretty simple um but as you get into bigger deals and you're thinking more about value add i, I definitely I like just just see it as an area where people get stuck a lot more. So can you talk to maybe like some of the specifics of how you got better? What some of the courses you took, who helped you actually learn how to underwrite or analyze multifamily and just, you know, what advice you have for other people based on that?
1: Yeah. And and I will say too, I mean, I agree with you, right? The one, the basic one to four unit house hack is very, or, you know, basic 25% down is pretty easy to analyze. Um, You know, our, my core today is still probably the three to 10 unit space. Uh, Mm -hmm. Just because, again, in Boston, you're that's you know, you're talking about a million to five million right there um, in terms of price range. Um, But, you know, the complexity in our modeling, obviously, is, again, through heavy construction and raising money. So, you know, we have to like project much more complicated loans, return structures for private investors um, and all that fun stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So in terms of where I actually learned that, um, you know, I took a couple of courses. um, I'm trying to think my. Probably the big one I remember I took was uh, a Wall Street. Uh, there was like a Wall Street modeling course that uh, that that is used for modeling, um, mo- tra- modeling training for private equity guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a really good course. I learned a ton there, and I kind of just combined that with a bunch of you know videos, books. Um, I took a number of Udemy courses um, and really just you know learn from a bunch of different sources. Honestly, I'm still kind of trying to up my game today. Um, uh, you know, today I'm taking, um, I'll give a shout out. I'm, I'm taking a course from Jonathan Twombly. Um, he's got a really good underwriting program on larger scale stuff, which uh, is kind of my next goal. Um, so, I'm, you know, I basically just took a culmination, a bunch of different resources, videos, and just kind of put it all together and, you know, got, started to get very good
0: at it. Mm-hmm. Um, I realized we jumped kind of right into your start and then your deals. So can you maybe bring us up to speed on where you're at today with everything? Um, Like we'll probably circle back, but just to give people context.
1: Oh, sure. Uh, In terms of portfolio. uh, Yes. So uh, today I, let's see, we've got uh, 38 units uh, in around Boston area. That's a portfolio value of about 12 million. Um, And uh, we've got, two new construction projects um, currently being built. That's another seven units and uh, another six units, which we're hopefully closing on next week.
0: <laughs> nice, man. That's awesome. Yeah. And again, being 27, that's, that's really cool. You said earlier that you guys typically stay in the three to 10 unit space or or just that's the range you've played in um, any specific reason why that space and also why Boston, you hear a lot of investors talking about, you know, finding cash flow markets, or you know, going for more units, and that's the metric they go off of. So, like, how did you pick or decide to invest in Boston, and then also three to ten units be kind of your sweet spot?
1: Yeah, that's actually a great question. I mean, you know, the the market selection is obviously pivotal. I would say this. I mean, when I first started on my first house hack, I obviously didn't have that much of a choice, just because I lived here, right? Mm-hmm. So I was like, hey, you know what? I'll just go buy in my backyard, but. You know, believe me, I've had these thoughts back and forth. Like, should I go to a different market where I can get more yield, more cash flow? But I think this is kind of where it comes down a little bit to personal philosophy, right? I'm a, I'm actually pretty conservative in terms of my investment philosophy. Um, I am, I am not a huge risk taker. You know, in the stuff that I know very, very well, will I be aggressive? Absolutely. Um, but just from a general, you know, aggressiveness. I don't like taking huge risks. Right. And for me, the appeal of Boston is you're investing in a class a market, right. That I know almost 99.9% uh, will be here in 10, 15 years without any erosion in value. And I know these assets are still going to have a ton of ton of demand in the next, you know, throughout my lifetime, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the appeal for me at Boston, right. I'm, I'm okay taking less yield um, on a on a month to month basis but really just buying like really legacy assets that are going to be there and are going to have value in five, 10 and 30 years. Gotcha. Um, Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And it's not like we haven't thought about expanding. Um, I think, you know, right before we jumped on the call, I told you, we are starting to look at other markets. Um, just because to the to this point, you know, it, at this point, we've started to really build out our portfolio here. Um, but now we're getting to the point where we're thinking, okay, we've got a really nice mix of like these really strong assets. Now, maybe we do go into maybe class B markets where we can get a little bit more yield um, to just grow our incomes on the side as well. Um, got it. So, yeah. so
0: I guess just going a little bit deeper into that, um, yep. like, like what, is the business right now? Like, what, what are the buildings you're typically looking at? What are you trying to do with those buildings? Are these turnkey buildings? Are they heavy rehab buildings? Are they somewhere in the middle? Like, what, what's a typical deal? Or, you know, maybe if you have one example or just kind of give our give our listeners kind of context of what a, what a deal looks like that you guys would be excited about.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, in terms of unit count, as I said, we're kind of playing in the three to 10 unit space. Um, The main reason for that is just that's the, that's also the most common inventory stock around Boston. Um, You know, Massachusetts really doesn't have, or at least the greater Boston area, doesn't really have massive, massive apartment buildings like I know they do in the Southwest or Southeast where they have, you know, two, 300 unit apartment complexes. That's just, that's a lot more rare here. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, that's kind of why we play in that space. Now, in terms of the kind of deal we look at, I would say really two types of deals. Um, We either have kind of what I call the lighter value add deal where maybe we're just doing stabilizing a building and doing cosmetics like, you know, kitchens, baths, floors, paint, or we're going to go and do what's called like a full gut rehab, right? Where we're buying a building, essentially tearing it from the inside completely from scratch and putting everything brand new electrical plumbing um, and all that fun jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can give you a, you know, I can give two quick examples of each one of those kinds of deals if that'd sure. be helpful. Um, so we just closed on one of the, a gut rehab a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, that's a building, for example, we bought for 700,000, um, you know, we're putting about $300,000 into it. Um, so that's going to cover the, everything from start to finish. Um, it's going to be a brand new spanking building.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's gonna, so once it's, once the construction is done, it'll probably be worth somewhere in the vicinity of 1.25 to 1.35 million. Um, And it's going to generate about $9,000 in gross rents um, or about, you know, $1,500 to $2,000 in free cash flow.
0: Got it. Wow. Okay. Um, And for most of your deals, is it, you mentioned we and partners and Willie and a couple other people's, what is the structure of the business? Is it, do you have different partners on every deal? Are you part of a company where you guys are buying deals together? What's what's kind of the the actual like structure and setup of that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been doing a lot of uh, work recently with uh, yeah, like you said, Willie. Um, you know, we've partnered quite a bit on a couple of deals, but you know, it's kind of deal by deal basis, right? I mean, every deal is a little different. It really depends on on the t- exact type of deal. Also depends on um, how, the structure of how we're raising money for the deal, right? So if you know if we're gonna be raising money as equity, for example, for a deal. So for those of you guys that are maybe not as familiar with that, uh, for every project we obviously need to put a down payment on the loan. And again, we don't really typically finance that ourselves just because if, I, if we did, then I'd be able to do one project a year. <laughs> um, so we usually have capital partners come in, right? So, you know, depending on the structure we give capital partners, they typically have to take a percentage of the deal. Um, so, you know, we kind of have to work out each deal individually Um, just depending on the financials, the business strategy behind it, um, and the numbers.
0: Mm -hmm. Got it. So on 38 units, if you could give our listeners context, you know, just everyone's in this game for cash flow. And a lot of the listeners are trying to figure out what their path to financial freedom is, or how they can make a certain number passively or fairly passively, or even actively, maybe it just depends on, I guess, what they're doing. What What is your cash flow on 38 units look like monthly?
1: um i mean today uh, that's uh, you know i mean without like huge vacancy turnover and all that i mean i should be bringing in somewhere in the vicinity of five grand a month of free cash flow Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but i i will make this note too because you know this is a conversation i've actually had with some bigger investors and and i and i think it's really important to differentiate right so on the cash, I think you have to differentiate the cash flow side versus the equity side. And, and here's what I mean. When you buy a building by yourself, right, whether you're going to house hack it or put 25% down, that's kind of what I see as a cash flow play, right? But if you're going to kind of go into the next level, which is essentially syndication to a degree, right, where you're bringing in capital partners, um, you know, you're giving up parts of the deal for, the, for their money, et cetera, and running, running the project on their behalf, you know, the cash flow, the month to month cash flows, I'll be honest, are not insanely juicy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially, especially when you're talking about the kind of price points I'm talk- you know, we're dealing with here in Boston. Um, you know, we're buying stuff at like $250,000, $300,000 a unit. Um, and, and then obviously, that's not even including the renovation budgets, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that stuff, again, honestly, it's just hard for it to be huge cash cows. Uh, for us personally, I would say those plays are a lot more of balance sheet builders, right? Um, those are the plays where we really build up equity in the property, really grow our net worth, but not necessarily create a ton, a ton of free cash flow. Um, so that and, and that's kind of the you know that's also kind of a struggle I have, right? Is I love you know obviously I want to c- continue to grow my net worth and um, you know the all the equity I have. But at the same time, too, I'm always focused on like, okay, but how do I, how do I also increase my own personal cash flow, right? Because obviously, that's a big goal for a lot of investors when they start out. So I, I would say it's definitely something that I'm working on. And I know a lot of other bigger investors have, uh, you know, it's a challenge they've faced. Um, and There's no great, easy solution, unfortunately, to it either.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, do you, do you think that, you know, for someone out there listening, and they're wondering, okay? Maybe I can buy a unit by myself if I save up and I can cash flow X amount, or I can partner with someone and maybe we could do a bigger deal and, you know, off a smaller piece of it and I'll cash flow this amount. You know, what advice do you have for someone, I guess, out there considering using their own money versus partnering with someone? Um, and I guess the pros and cons of doing that.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, if, if you've got, I guess it really depends on your goals too, right? I mean, at I, I, in, in this stage in my career too, I am, pr- I mean, I'll be honest, I-, I am probably more heavily focused on my balance sheet rather than the cash flow aspect of it. Hmm. Um, so, you know, for me, I-, I don't mind doing this. Now, if you're someone that is like, hey, you know what, I-, I want cash flow and that's like the most important thing for me right now. And I, you know, I don't really care about necessarily the equity buildup, which is, you know, kind of a different conversation about that perspective. But if you're someone like that, then yeah, then go use your own money and either go house hack or go put 25% down. And yeah, you're going to generate way more free cash flow than you would if you were going to partner with someone or try to, you know, join venture, however however you want to structure it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you're more of a, hey, I'm trying to make this like a business and I want to, you know, I like the idea of increasing my net worth. I don't really care about you know, an extra couple thousand dollars a month is not really going to change my life because I have other income coming in. Then, yeah, maybe you go use that capital and you start figuring out how to grow that business um, and maybe get into multiple projects instead of putting all that money into one building.
0: Got it. Because so I guess for you, what what is the driver? Because it's interesting. Most I'd say twenty-something year olds that we have in the podcast or even myself. I'm cash flow driven. You know, like uh, I, for me, and I feel like a lot of people, they needed to get financially free to get out of a job. And then from there, they can focus on net worth and building equity and appreciation, all the other stuff. So I'm curious for you. What what is you know how, how is it that you feel that way? Is do you have you just been living like frugally and now you can support yourself on five thousand, or did you have another income stream or job during that time, or are you just playing more the long game and you know it is what it is. You don't you're, you're not so interested in cash flow for all those reasons or maybe other reasons.
1: Uh the, this is a really good question actually. So and this is <laughs> these are a lot of topics I've been talking about. So in terms of other income, I mean. I do have another income, right? I mean, I, I am a real estate, I'm a full-time real estate agent on this um, as well. I've got a team that I run as well with multiple agents on it. Um, so I do, you know, I do have a pretty strong source of primary income, if you will. So that's why I'm not necessarily as tied down to, okay, I need to generate an extra couple thousand bucks every month, right? That's, you know, if I will, will go in from that four or 5,000 bucks a month to seven, eight, is that going to make my life better? Absolutely, but <laughs> you know, I, I don't think that's gonna. That's not my number one driver right now. And, and I think a lot of this too is, um, you know, after after reading a lot of like bigger investor stuff too. I, I think cash flow is important, but I, I think a lot of you know, and I think resources like bigger, bigger pockets have been really instrumental. But but I think they, I I do think they over glorify this concept of cash flow right and I, i'm not but again i'm not i'm not he's sitting here and saying like don't chase it you don't need it i mean you definitely do but i think it kind of becomes oh people just glorified so much that they really forget about one of the real wealth drivers of real estate right because if you really look at the guys that have made substantial wealth in real estate it wasn't cash flow. Like, like mm. if you're going to be honest, like, you know, a couple hundred bucks here, a couple thousand bucks here, let's be real. That's not really going to change your wealth, right? I mean, they really made it on buying fantastic assets and creating a crap ton of equity in them, right? And then reaping the rewards on refinances or exits, right? I mean, that's really where the big money is made in real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do think that I, I do, you know, I know, I know this concept has become incre- incredibly popular lately. Um, and I think it's just been a little bit, I think it's been taken to a little bit too much of an extreme where people are kind of almost treating real estate as like an income source, almost like a, almost like a bond, if you will, rather than looking at the real upside of real estate, which is, and, and how people really got wealthy, which is really the equity creation Um through, through, you know, through value add or however you want to do it. Um, But I really think that's where the real money is made.
0: Yeah, it's just, it's such an interesting concept, you know, like for a lot of people in this group, that need to get out of their job or at least think they do they just don't like what they do you know they are looking for cash flow but i i typically tell them if you don't if you don't hate your job you'll be able to make much more in appreciation and equity build up in a five or ten year period than you would ever be able to make in cash flow during that same period but it just you can't spend equity right now so for a lot of them they hate their jobs and they need to get out and they need cash flow so they're looking at Either cash flow markets or Airbnb or even wholesaling, you know, things that can make more active income or higher cash flow. But you're right. I think you nailed it. If you're thinking about long term wealth, it's not coming off monthly cash flow, it's coming off holding assets long term, adding value to them, and then just seeing them grow and wait. And, and obviously, from there, you get all the other benefits tax benefits, debt pay down appreciation, that sort of stuff. So it's an interesting concept, but I don't think people make the distinction clear enough when they're just talking about buy real estate or you should be cash flowing or buy for appreciation. There's a lot of different nuances to your point to someone's goals or situation. So um, that that's just a really good point. Um, Lior, just kind of circling back a little bit on kind of the, the structure and I guess how you have the deal set up. Um, mm-hmm. Right now, what is the current management structure of the deals and who does what I guess on these deals on a day-to-day basis.
1: Yeah, great question. Um, So, in terms of today, the way we really operate, um, you know, my side of the business that I'm really good at is, as I said, I mean, I'm really good at acquisitions and marketing. Um, So, that's definitely a big component of what I bring to the table. I do, uh, I do all the underwriting for our deals as well as deal structuring. Um, So that, and, and what I mean by that is, again, for any deal that we put under contract. Um, I'm kind of figuring out obviously the numbers behind the deal, but also how we're going to structure it, right? Like, are we going to bring private investors in a deal? Are we going to give up equity? Are we going to maybe try to raise it as private debt? If we're going to raise it as private debt, what kind of terms can we offer? What um, that are fair to them that are good, you know, that are obviously fair to us Um, and just basically figuring out how to put this deal together, um, you know, from a financial structure. Um, you know, a lot of the de- I'm starting to also take down, um, you know, lo- uh, the loans myself today. So when we first started my partner, like I said, he was the one that had more experience. He was bringing the debt to the table. Um, today I'm starting to do that a lot more often. Now I've got pretty good contacts with different local community <laughs> banks. Um, so I do a lot of the kind of like that front end heavy lifting, if you will, in terms of putting the deal together. And once the deals together, um, you know, if Again, most of our projects have some sort of construction element to them. I would say my partner is really good and is really kind of the person that's running our construction aspect. Mm -hmm. Um, He's very good at that. He's actually got a team now that is like really just crunching. Um, We have an in-house property management now as well. So, you know, I used to be the one dealing with a lot of tenant management issues. That's kind of offloaded. So really, it's just for me, it's really... Honestly, it's just getting really good at those front end things. Um, And and it's, you know, what I've learned is, uh, again, from studying bigger investors and developers is they, once you get to a certain scale, you're kind of almost like the conductor of the orchestra, right? It's not like you don't necessarily have to be doing all the heavy lifting um, all the time. You're kind of just putting the pieces in place. And that's almost kind of how I uh, view myself today.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, I think that's a cool like place to get to um, when you realize that you can delegate a lot more and you've learned a lot of the the lower activities and then you know figuring out what's a good use of your time and then kind of just keep asking yourself that question and keep scaling. So um, really, really cool stuff. Leo, is there anything we haven't talked about that you think is just a good, kind of word to get out there or, or anything that you think about a lot like mantra for real estate investing before we uh, just wind down and get you out of here?
1: Yeah. I'd say one, one of the quick note, just uh, circling back to the, uh, the topic we talked about before about, um, you know, cause I, I know a lot of folks, I, I know the sexy thing to talk about today is like quitting your job and passive income and all that fun stuff. Here, I just wanted to make one final note about it is mm-hmm again, I, I think it's a very, very, I think information is great, but there's so much of that info. There's a point where information can almost backfire at you. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and I think that concept has just been so over glorified today because people think like, Oh, I can quit my job and I can get this passive income. But if you really, I mean, let's, I'll be honest with you guys. Like if you know, there, there's no such thing as truly passive income, right? I, I, Unless you're investing into someone else's syndication and they're the operator. But if you're gonna if you're thinking you're just gonna like buy some real estate and then sit on the beach or at home and just like make money every month, that's really not how it works, right? Like even on my own rentals that I own by myself, where I make the bulk of my cash flow. I mean, I make the bulk of my cash flow, A, because I don't pay a property manager, right? Because that saves me close to a thousand bucks a month. Mm-hmm. Um, and B, you know, you you you're dealing with crap all the time, right? So you know, for people that are like sick of their jobs or stuff like that, I would say you're going to be dealing with crap one way or another, right? Mm-hmm. So like, get good at whatever you want to do. And I and I think a lot of people are honestly prematurely, um, prematurely uh, ending their jobs, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you need an income, right? And if you want to get continue to get loans, you're going to have to continue to have an income. Um, so just think about that. Don't like, you know, don't get too hyped up into the whole um, you know, quit your job. Ba-ba-ba-bum. I just think, I think it's a very sexy thing to say, but people don't really think through the ramifications. So start small, right? How, go buy your first property, house hack it, um, or go put 25% down, see how you like it and build it over time. But I wouldn't necessarily make these crazy, crazy jumps. Um, Cause I think they're very, you know, I think there's only a small percentage of people that can really handle them. I don't think people really understand just how much pressure um, there is if you're you know, exiting your primary source of income.
0: For sure. Couldn't agree with that more. Lior, what is the best way for people to get in touch or follow you on social media? For sure. Uh,
1: yeah, so you can follow me on Instagram. Uh, it's just Lior Rosansky, R-E, like real estate. Uh, or you can check out my uh, YouTube channel. Um, I put out content there every week. It's, uh, if you search Lior Rosansky, Real Estate Investing, uh, you will find me on there.
0: Okay, awesome. Lior, thank you for coming on the show, man. It's been fun. It's cool to talk to other 27-year-olds doing so much. And it's just the beginning, man. So it's going to be fun to watch the next couple of years and uh, look forward to doing part two. Hey, appreciate you having me on here, man. All right, have a good one. Cheers. See ya.
1: Hey, you millennial millionaire. Are you looking for help getting to the next level in real estate? Are you looking for accountability and strategy to achieve your goals? If so, Jonathan is now taking on one-on-one students and opening a few spots in his private mastermind. It's affordable and welcome to everyone. If you had any questions or think you may need a boost, send Jonathan a message on Facebook or email at Outlook.com.